You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. So this morning we're going to be looking at Jesus' famous encounter with the Jewish leaders at the temple in Jerusalem. And it's my hope that, uh, that we'll come away more grateful for both the discipline of Jesus uh, and also the love of Jesus to save. Uh, so let's start reading in God's word. We'll start in verse 13. And I'm sure your pastors tell you this all the time, but this book, this is, this is like no other thing that you will do this week. Uh, you've, you've maybe read uh, recipe books or magazines or you've read some blogs, uh, you've listened to some podcasts. This is like nothing else that you've done all week. This is, this is God's word to us. Uh, and he is going to be speaking to us through that word. So let's open our ears, open our hearts, uh, and receive from him as we read. Starting in verse 13 of chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's go ahead and pray together one more time. Well, Lord, we, uh, we want to ask for your help one more time. Lord, just as we hear the preaching of your word, Lord, would you help us to receive it with open hearts and open ears. Lord, and be true to your promise that that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. Lord, so give us faith this morning to trust you, to see you, to come to you. Uh, yeah, Lord, we ask these things by the spirit of God. Help us, we pray, amen. Well, this past Thanksgiving day, uh, which happened to fall on November 24th this year, it would have been my granny's 94th birthday. Now, my granny went home to be with the Lord in 2016, uh, so she didn't actually celebrate that birthday with us. But my, my granny, she was just a strong woman of God, a spiritual matriarch from my dad's side of the family, and, and an inspiration to me of what it looked like to love God and to serve him and to trust him, and especially to take his word seriously. She was a dear woman, generous with her time and her resources. She was always praying and singing to the Lord, always directing the attention of those around her to the presence and the power of God's Spirit. I have very fond memories of my granny's smile, her, her glowing blue eyes, her laugh, her love of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, 
Uh, and actually, you guys would lo- love to know this, that after Jordan retired, she, she picked up the San Antonio Spurs. Like, that was her new team, Tim Duncan. Like, she loved those guys. Um, so I remember going to her house and watching those, those games on her TV. So I have very fond memories of being at my granny's house. But I also have a very uh, few memories of granny getting really irritated, usually with my papa, and usually for silly things like him giving her trouble about his physical exercises that he was supposed to be da- doing or, or making goofy fa- faces with his dentures or, or sneaking a cookie behind her back because he was a diabetic and he wasn't supposed to be eating cookies. Um, but there was this one time that I can remember Granny getting uncapably angry. I mean, like, really angry. Like, like Granny's going to whoop somebody angry. <laughs> and this is a very vivid memory for me because the one who was on the receiving end of Granny's unusual display of wrath was me. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I can't really remember what it was that I did to deserve this, but all I remember is that what I had done was something that Granny was not happy with. Her entire sweet little countenance had changed. She seemed to grow eight feet tall. I could almost see her blood boiling through her veins and her arms. And then I have this distinct memory. I remember her arm shaking as she raised her wrinkly little hand and swatted me on the backside. She hadn't hurt me, but man, was I terrified. And not because Granny was terrifying. She wasn't at all. She was this little short five-foot German woman. Uh, but I remember feeling terrified because this was not Granny's usual calm and collected demeanor. And it kind of freaked me out. Something had changed about Granny's countenance. And I knew that change had been my fault. She was angry because of something that I had done. But the memory I have of what happened next I think is even greater and stronger and more vivid to me. Because what happened next, the vision that I have of her is my sweet little granny crumpled up in a puddle of tears on the floor next to me, hugging me, weeping, and assuring me of her love for me. Maybe some of you parents and grandparents can relate to a moment like that, where discipline was necessary, uh, but but you wanted to make sure that your your son or daughter know your love for them. Without her even knowing it, my granny taught me a valuable lesson that day about both the discipline and the love of Jesus. And I think there's a valuable lesson that Jesus wants to teach us today as well, a lesson both about his discipline and his love. So we're going to spend a lot of time this morning just kind of going back and forth, me, me talking, but getting your nose back in the book and, and looking at, at God's word. So let's, let's take our, our word out. Look at verse 12. We didn't actually read this, but let's look at verse 12 just to get a little bit of context. So verse 12 says, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So immediately following the wedding in Cana, that was what we heard last week, uh, where Jesus had turned the water into wine, John tells us this, that his mother and his brothers, that they had gone down to Capernaum and they stayed there for a few days. Then in verse 13, we read this, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So the Passover as you may know, it was an annual Jewish festival that celebrated Israel's deliverance from Egyptian slavery. Jesus, like he probably did every year of his life, was again making the journey up to Jerusalem to join the other four or 500,000 Jews that would typically participate in the week-long Passover celebration. The festival would take place at the temple, which had been the place God had given his people where they could go to meet with him, to offer sacrifices for their sins, and to worship and pray. And at this time in history, it was the most holy place in the most holy city during one of the biggest festivals of the year for the nation of Israel. 
For most attending, the anticipation and expectations would have been super high. But, as we'll see in the text, as Jesus entered the temple that day, what he found sickened him. Look at verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So instead of witnessing the reverent sights and sounds of the worship and prayer and praise of his father, Jesus instead is bombarded with a noisy, bustling marketplace. The pungent odor of massive horned beasts bumping into one another and kicking against their stalls, sheep doing their little skittish bleeding thing. And I imagine it was like a stinky and loud and chaotic, anything but an environment conducive to contemplation and worship. And, and this, the text tells us, is what Jesus finds. This is what he encounters. And immediately upon entering, Jesus takes action to do something about it. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, it make, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. Now, maybe, maybe when you heard that we were going to be speaking about this famous story, m- maybe you thought, that Jesus, that, oh yeah, that's that story when Jesus gets really angry. But l- look at the text. The text never actually says that Jesus was angry. And that was a surprise to me when I started studying this text, because I, I think I as well thought, you know, that, that's the text so Jesus gets angry. I was sure I remembered that, that that was true. But look at the text. What we see in there, we see zeal. Uh, we see the word consume. Uh, we see an exclamation mark or two. Uh, but nowhere in the text does it say that Jesus was angry. Now, that being said, it doesn't take a Bible scholar to read between the lines. I mean, Jesus doesn't start trying to tie a few cords together because he likes to crochet. <laughs> uh, he makes a whip in order to start smacking the sheep and oxen and driving them out of the temple. And he doesn't just use that whip on the animals. Verse 15 says he drove them all out of the temple. You see that there? All. That includes the human beings, you guys. The merchants, the money changers. Grown businessmen who just a few seconds ago had been sitting there processing cattle and are now being chased out of the temple by Jesus in his makeshift whip. I mean, do you have this scene in your mind? I can't imagine what it must have been like to have showed up to worship that day. There had to have been screaming and pushing and confusion and clouds of dust everywhere. It had to be absolute mayhem. Jesus had created quite a stir. But then verse 15, look there, it goes on to say, to, to describe Jesus picking up the money bags and pouring out all the coins all over the floors. That had to be kind of noisy. And flipping over the money changers' tables. And then Jesus sets his sights on the pigeon people, shouting at them, take these things away. These cages, I'm assuming that's what he's talking about. It can almost make you wonder, has Jesus lost his mind? What happened to the gentle and lowly carpenter welcoming the little children to come and sit on his lap? This seems to be a very differently postured Jesus. He's livid, determined, passionate, his eyes enraged with fiery zeal. That's really what's going on here. But we got to be careful and not misunderstand. Because Jesus had not lost his sanity or his deity. He hasn't lost his cool. He hasn't woken up on the wrong side of the bed that morning. He isn't overreacting. It may be hard for us to comprehend, but the anger that Jesus is displaying is not the same as when you and I get cut off in traffic. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is angry, but Jesus is not sinfully so. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4, 
26, as he instructed the believers in Ephesus, he said this, be angry and do not sin. Now that, I'm sure if you're like me, that probably feels impossible to do as you just think about all the scenarios where you feel anger come up in you uh, throughout the day. But what this verse tells us in Ephesians is that there is a way to be angry without sinning. Because otherwise, Paul would have just said, hey, Ephesians, don't get angry because that's sinful to do that. So, so nobody angry. If anybody feeling angry, don't do that. Don't get angry. No, he doesn't do that, though. That's not what he says. Paul seems to leave room for the possibility of a sort of righteous, sinless anger. And in fact, I mean, what the text does there, he actually commands it. He says, be angry. There are times when anger is appropriate. There are times where things should upset you. There are things like poverty and abortion, and human trafficking, and murder, and war, and famine, and disease, and injustice. When evil seems to prevail, the appropriate response for the Christian is to be angry. Not to hunker down on our sofas watching commercials, not sticking our head in the sand and hoping all the bad stuff will eventually go away. As Christians, we're called to speak out against evil, to pray against the spiritual forces at work among us, and to do all we can to resist the enemy of our souls and his advancement in the world around us and in our hearts within us. But as we do, we must remember to be angry and do not sin. That's the difference between us and Jesus. Most of the time when we get angry, even at wrong, bad, or, or downright evil things, we get sinfully angry don't you? We lack self-control. We speak impatiently. We raise our voice. We use hurtful or inappropriate words. We seek to tear people down. Our sinful anger can look like mocking a friend or a co-worker behind their back. It can look like saying things to strangers on social media you'd never actually say to them to their face. It can look like canceling entire subcultures in our society because of their wrongness instead of modeling Jesus' willingness to extend love to the outcasts, the demon-possessed, the swindlers, the prostitutes. What about you? Where can you tend to become sinfully angry? I can tell you how studying this passage has exposed this tendency to sinful anger in my life. Uh, sinful anger can look like speaking impatiently and harshly toward my children, especially when I feel they have disobeyed me, especially if I feel disrespected by them or disregarded by them. I'm too often too quick to speak to them too sharply, too condescendingly, and out of a spirit of anger and irritation. I mean, my kid, they're sitting right there. They know. They know what dad's talking about, right? <laughs> um, I, I would be ashamed for any of you to hear the way that I speak to them, like me speaking that way to you. And it's not something that I do all the time, and it's not something I'm proud to do, so I'm trying to make sure that, that that's coming clear. I, I would be ashamed of that. But these kids, they, you know, they, they are the most precious people to me on the planet besides my wife, Erin. And they, they, speak, they hear me speak to them this way far too often. And it's because I trick myself. I trick myself into thinking I have some sort of permission to speak to them that way. Because they are doing something sinful or, or childish or because they've challenged my rightful God-given authority as their dad. 
But just because God has chosen to place me in a position of authority in their lives, God has chosen to do that, it doesn't mean that I'm excused from needing to display self-control. It doesn't give me the right to say whatever I feel like saying to them however I feel like saying it. And we do this all the time with one another. We tell ourselves that we're speaking the truth in love, but we're, we're really just blurting out the truth with carelessness. It's a tricky thing to keep in balance. We do need to speak the truth when it's hard. We should stand against injustice. There is a right way for those who bear the name of Christ to confront and oppose evil and sin. But tethered to the call to do justice, that's in Micah 6 verse 8, to do justice. There are two other things that God says to do in that verse, if you know that verse. The other two things it says, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So yes, we need to do justice, but we've got two other things, like twice as many things we need to do, which is love kindness and walk humbly. And in our passage this morning, John, he's not calling us to assemble our whips and start a cleaning service. That would be a misapplication, a misunderstanding of this passage. This passage, it's not intended to give us the right of, to start flipping over the tables of everyone on the other side of our political preference. And, and maybe some of you long-term, like long-standing Christians, you know this is how some Christians use this passage. Yes, Jesus was angry at the sin of the Jew, Jewish leaders, but his anger never crossed over the sin line. He may have been forceful, but he wasn't cruel or out of control. Those in the temple that day, they weren't witnessing a maniac flying off the handle. They were actually witnessing the righteous anger of a loving Savior. But then that begs the question, why was Jesus so angry? Why did he respond this way? Well, let's look in verse 16, because in verse 16, Jesus comes right out and tells us. So what he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And if you look in some of the other gospel accounts, you'll see a den of thieves. Like there was, there was something going on that Jesus witnessed that was not appropriate. Was Jesus upset that they were just selling animals? Is that why he was upset? Well, it couldn't have been that. And the reason why I say that is because many people at the Passover, they had walked for miles on foot to come to, the, to this celebration. And part of what was going to go on at this celebration was to make animal sacrifices in the temple. It would have been impossible for many to travel with the necessary sacrificial ox or sheep or lamb or goat or for the poorest among them, even a pigeon or dove. So the Jewish leaders, they had begun to provide these animals for purchase for the people coming to the festival. Originally, they had sold them outside the city, outside the temple, in what was called the Kidron Valley. But eventually, mostly for convenience sake, they started selling them right inside the temple in what was called the outer court, or the court of the Gentiles. And Phil mentioned us going to Nepal together. Uh, we got to see something that was very similar to this description, didn't we? We went to some of the temples there. Uh, because we would, as soon as you come into the temple, aligned on either side of the walkway were all these booths. And they're selling things like grains and, and flowers and incense for you to take with you into the temple and offer sacrifices. Uh, so that, that I, I remember walking through there going, man, this is just like John too. Um, and so 
now, sorry, this was a place that was dedicated, designated for, for non-Jewish travelers. This, this outer court was where the non-Jewish travelers were supposed to come to worship God. And since only Jews were allowed to, to go into the inner court, this was their only place to come and do that. If you were a non-Jew and you wanted to worship Yahweh, you did that in the outer courts. Uh, and so now this place that had been reserved for them to come and worship, it had become a place for the Jewish leaders to make a buck. And that wasn't the only problem. According to Exodus 30, everyone 20 years and older was to be counted in the yearly census. But in order to be counted, each had to provide what was called a census tax. It was valued at half a shekel, and that went to covering costs for the service of the temple. So with so many people traveling to Jerusalem from so many different countries, all with their own currencies, foreign currencies that had to be converted before they were accepted as payment, uh, all these Jewish leaders decided, hey, let's set up a bank inside the temple so that for a small convenience fee, one could convert his foreign currency and pay his temple tax all at the same time. So you could literally walk up to the temple with nothing on you, except for your, your own foreign currency. Buy your sheep, walk another few feet, convert your coins to the Jerusalem half shekel, pay your shekel, your census tax, and then you can bring your sheep over to the priest and have it sacrificed for your sins, and then bam, you're done. A one-stop worship shop. But as we can tell from all the whipping and the flipping, that was apparently a big problem for Jesus. It wasn't the mere sale of animals or the conversion of money, it was that they were doing the selling and the trading inside the temple inside his father's house. When Jesus walked into the temple that day, what he should have found was reverence. But instead he found commerce. Inside the walls of this sacred space was to be a place for contemplation and communion with God. But these leaders had cluttered up its courts with cattle and coins. They had turned it into a money-making market. They had prioritized their own convenience. And by doing so, they had disregarded the temple's sanctity, its holiness, its purity. They had diminished its worth and value. They had disrespected and dishonored the God to whom the temple belonged. And Jesus would not allow this to continue. Verse 16, we read it already. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. That's what Jesus says. Before we, we move on in our text, let's, let's take a quick moment to have some self-reflection. What about us? You know, obviously, <laughs> very obviously, we don't gather in an Old Testament, Old Testament temple, right? We're gathered in a movie theater here this morning. Um, we had some friends who visited you guys last summer, the Spiegels that go to our church, uh, Ben and Lindsay Spiegel, and they, they were like, oh, you guys are going to Mission City? They have the best chairs of any church ever. Uh, so yeah, and I, I attest to that. They're very comfortable chairs. Uh, but the point that this passage is making is like, don't meet in a movie theater. That's not what Jesus is saying here. I, what, what Jesus is wanting us, I think, to, to reflect on is if he walked into our church, your church this morning, the people, if he, if he encountered the people of Mission City Fellowship, what kind of church would he find gathered here this morning to worship his father? I think that's a good question to ask. What would the hearts of his people here say to him about their love for his father's glory? Would he find people zealous for his father's house? A people zealous for the pure worship of God? People with a passion to see the name of Christ exalted. People with a heart to proclaim the good news of the gospel to the lost so they might believe in the name of Christ for salvation. 
Would he find people with an expressive eagerness to worship their Savior together? Would he find people pursuing the gifts of the Holy Spirit and seeking to use those gifts to build up his church? Would he find people arriving on time, eager to gather with one another to worship and to receive his word? Would he find people eager to linger after the service, just not uh, uh, outside the thing right here? Uh, But would he find people eager to linger with one another after the service in order to minister to and fellowship with one another? Is that the kind of people he would find? Would, Would he find people with spiritually sensitive eyes and ears who are eagerly looking beyond their own needs to see and find and discover the spiritual and physical needs of their brothers and sisters around them and to try to figure out ways to meet those needs? Or... Would he find people who just want a convenient and non-invasive religious experience? Who say, sure, God, I'll I'll give you some of my Sunday, as long as it doesn't cost me too much. As long as it doesn't require too much of my effort, or my energy, or my time. As long as I don't have to sacrifice too much, or be too uncomfortable, or too inconvenienced. Well, brothers and sisters, I, I haven't got to meet many of you guys, but just being with your pastor and his wife and their kids uh if that's a i mean i know rob i know juan some so i know a few of you guys but just being with you sitting here among you this morning and listening to you sing i got to sit up in the front so i'm hearing your voices sing over my head these truths that i need to remember and and celebrate in this morning Uh, i i don't think that uh from what i know about you that there's a lot of danger here of you guys not having a respectful zeal for the lord's house but it's it's something that can tempt any one of us we can become numb to it in a moment even unaware of it so it's good for us to ask questions like this of ourselves to be self-reflective and then as we as we self-reflect to then pray and say oh lord jesus help us to have an ever-increasing palpable like a, a a an able to be tasted zealousness for our father's house and for christ's name that be our prayer. Let's continue. John concludes the first half of our text with verse 17. And this verse, it's actually a kind of brief editorial note uh, that John gives to those of us who are reading along with this story. So look at verse 17. It says this, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So it'd be easy to kind of skip over that verse uh, and and just go ahead and move on to the rest of the story. But I think it's important for us as we read our Bibles to always be asking questions of the text that we're reading. So, you know, verse 17, why why is that here? What does this text mean? What what is the biblical author trying to communicate here or or to get me to consider? Why why is this in this place? you know, remember, our text this morning, this, this isn't just an excerpt from the Apostle John's daily diary. You know what I mean by that? Like that, it's not like John sat down at the end of this day that we're reading about and just like noted down everything that happened. Blah, 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 blah. No, what John has done in this gospel, this gospel account, it was written way after all these events had happened. And, and really smart guys, they've figured out kind of where they think that he was when he, re- when he wrote, uh, wrote this. Uh, but this gospel account, it was written after the events of Jesus' life had already occurred. So it wasn't just a live news report written in real time. It was a very carefully and intentionally written retelling of the life of Jesus by the Apostle John, who had been an eyewitness of all the events that he is describing in this gospel. But John took great effort and time to craft every word of this story with a very specific 
and we believe divinely inspired purpose. By that we mean that God was divinely inspired, was giving John divine inspiration on how to write and what words to choose. And Do you remember what the purpose of this whole book was? John tells it to us right at the end of this, of this whole book in chapter 20, verse 31. He says this, but these, all the accounts that are found in this book, all the miracles, all the dialogues, the characters, the editorial notes, all of these, but these, are written so that you, you being whoever it is that's reading this, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what the whole series is about. That's what this whole book is about. That's John's purpose for every single word written in this gospel. He wants his readers to believe in the name of Christ. And as his disciples are watching Jesus clear everyone out of the temple, John wants us to know that an Old Testament scripture pops into their head. That's what, that's what he's saying. His disciples remembered that it was written. Where was it written? It was written in the Old Testament scriptures. Where specifically? Well, it, it actually was Psalm 69 verse 9. And that psalm says, yeah, yeah, for zeal for your house has consumed me. Or even some translations say, has eaten me up. Psalm 69, 9, it's, it's almost an exact copy of what John says in John 2. If you look at that and you look at John 2, it's almost exactly the same words. But did you notice that there's a subtle grammatical change there? You see a difference? John makes this subtle grammatical change as he quotes the original text. He changes the original ever so slightly from the past tense, has consumed me, to the future tense, will consume me. You see that? Why does he do that? That can't be an accident. It's got to be on purpose. There has to be something that he's wanting us to pay attention to. Well, as we considered earlier, John certainly wants to make sure we understand the reason why Jesus would behave in such a drastic way. It was zeal for his father's house, consuming him that day in the temple as he drove out the money changers, right? But John is also using a sort of play on words. He is cleverly alluding to and pointing us forward to the next scene that we're about to read, where Jesus will speak of his coming crucifixion. And so we'll see that here in just a second. Because John wants us to know there is one thing that Jesus is zealous about. And that is his father's glory. So John takes out a highlighter and he underscores this for us. This is Jesus' mission, John's telling us. This is what drives Jesus to do everything that he does. His every thought, his every decision, his every conversation with every person he ever encounters. It's an all-consuming zeal to please and worship and obey and serve his father. And it will be this very zeal for his father's glory. That will eventually drive Jesus to where? To the cross. He will give up his life. He will be beaten. He will be crushed. He will be forsaken. He will be humiliated. He will be consumed. Literally eaten up by the righteous wrath of God toward the sins of the entire human race. It will all be poured out on him. And Jesus will consume every single drop of God's wrath. Feel every ounce of the weight of sin. Experience the intensity of being separated from his Father. All so that you and I won't ever have to endure it. Zeal for his Father's house will consume him. 
continues with the story. The dust begins to settle, and I imagine everyone who had been inside the temple, they're now standing outside the temple. Perhaps many of them are sticking around to see what might happen next. I mean, you know, this could be like must-see TV. Who who knows what's going to happen next? Uh, And then we read in verse 18, look at that. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? So now we've got a conversation that's going to happen between the Jews. A lot of the commentators seem to agree that the Jews, they're the ones who are stepping up to do the talking to Jesus, that they're actually the Jewish authorities. They're, they're the religious leaders. They're the ones responsible for the oversight of the temple and the ones who would have been most affected by the stir that Jesus had created that day. You know, Jesus had left the temple marketplace in shambles, which would have probably been an embarrassment to these religious elite. Not to mention the significant financial loss they would have suffered and the huge mess there is now to clean up. So you can understand, they're probably not very happy with Jesus. Uh, So they stand up and they say, you got to give us a sign. Like, why'd you do this? Um, But don't don't you think it's interesting that they don't immediately arrest Jesus? And we'll see that several times in this gospel as you guys are studying through it. Uh, It seems like they want to kill him right away and they want to arrest him, but then they kind of don't because they're they're not really sure if they should or not. Um, I mean, it seems like they could have at least charged him with rioting or disturbing the peace or, you know, something like that. Uh, But as several commentators pointed out as I was was studying this, uh, they, they all wondered if they the reason that Jesus wasn't arrested right here might have been because history had proven that prophets who actually were sent by God, which they weren't sure Jesus was at this point, but prophets who had been sent by God, they always seemed to do some pretty peculiar things. They always seemed to stir up trouble, in a sense. Uh, And so perhaps these religious leaders, they wondered, at least to some degree, whether Jesus might have actually been on some divine assignment from God. John Calvin says this in his commentary on this passage. We have a quote here. When in so large an assembly... No man laid hands on Christ, and none of the dealers in cattle or the money changers repelled him by violence. We may conclude that they were all stunned and struck with astonishment by the hand of God. That's one possible uh, scenario. Not been utterly blinded, this would have been a sufficiently evident miracle. That one man against a great multitude, an unarmed man against strong men, an unknown man against so great rulers, attempted so great an achievement. So I think what John Calvin's saying is that Jesus' credentials, they should have been sufficiently evident to these people. Not to mention all the miracles that he'd been doing around the country. I mean, he had just turned water into wine. I'm sure that story started to get around. But the Jews here are apparently utterly blinded to the truth, the reality of who Jesus is. Jesus himself was all the proof that they needed, but what do they do? They still ask him for more. Instead of looking at themselves to see if there's any just cause for Jesus' correction, they just get defensive and demand that he give them a sign, a miracle. I wonder if, I wonder if we're ever tempted to respond similarly to the loving whip of Jesus. Think about your own life. When Jesus steps into the temple of your heart and says, take these things away, What tends to be your first response? Is it to be self-examining or self-protecting? Because that's what we see the Jewish leaders doing. They're they're protecting themselves. Uh, Is yours a posture of humility or a posture of defensiveness when Jesus is saying, hey, there's something going on in your life right now that needs to get out. That doesn't please me. That doesn't please my Father. It's impure. It's evil. Get that out. Do, Do you... 
Do you receive that humbly? Do you tend to be dismissive? Or do you tend to accept the discipline of the Lord? Do you, like the Jewish leaders, delay your obedience until God meets you on your terms, until he gives you some sort of sign? The Jewish leaders, they were essentially asking Jesus to perform a magic trick for, him, for them, something miraculous, something otherworldly that to their natural eyes would then prove that he was God. But Jesus isn't that kind of God. He doesn't cater to the cravings of his creatures. He defines what surrendering to his authority looks like. So he flips the challenge back onto them. I, lo I love this. Uh, this whole little section is probably my favorite part of this whole passage. Jesus answers them. Look in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And then Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, which is a very curious reply from Jesus. Like, what, what in the world is he talking about? Then look at verse 20. The Jews then said, it's, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. Is that, is that what you're really talking about? You're going to raise it up in three days if we tear it down? You can hear their confusion and perhaps, perhaps even like a little irritation in their response to him. Um, it's, it's almost like they're saying, does this guy really think he can do this? Does he really expect us to get the bobcats out and start demoing our newly renovated temple? There's no way he could actually build it back in 72 hours, right? I mean, like they're, they're asking each other, no way he could do that, huh? I mean, it was a brilliant reply from Jesus. Think about what he's doing, what Jesus is doing to these guys. He knew, Jesus knew, that for them to take him at his word, to, to actually try to do this, to destroy the temple and, let, and see if he could build it back up, for, for them to take him at his word, that would require them to exercise faith in the very supernatural power and authority that they were questioning in him. Isn't that, isn't that cool? That's so crazy. They basically, they don't know what to do, so they just shut the whole thing down. They're like, yeah, right, Jesus. Okay, sure. You, you hear this guy? We've been working on getting this temple rebuilt for almost 50 years, and he's trying to get us to tear it down so we can build it back in three days. Psh, what a wacko. Okay, everybody, the party's over. Nothing supernatural to see here. And then it was over. That was it. Jesus gives no rebuttal. The Jewish leaders seem to have won the argument. They made Jesus look more like a deranged fool than a divine savior. And as the crowd clears, it's as if Jesus is left standing there, all by himself, all alone, misrepresented, misunderstood, publicly humiliated. Doesn't that feel like a familiar sight to us, 21st century Christians who are on this side of the cross and Calvary? All alone, misrepresented, misunderstood, publicly humiliated. That, that looks a lot like Calvary, doesn't it? Looks like, like the Jesus who hung on the cross for our sins. That's why John, as the narrator of our story, he gives us another helpful editorial note. Look in verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So the Jewish leaders, they thought one thing. They thought he was talking about the temple building behind them, but John's letting us know who are reading, it's not the temple he's talking about. He was talking about the temple of his body. It's like, oh, of course, thank you, John. Of course he wasn't talking about the temple building. He was talking about the temple of his body. I mean, sure, Jesus certainly could have miraculously raised a few blocks of dirt from the ground and formed them into a building. I mean, he had made man, after all, from dust, so a, a building isn't as hard as that. Uh, but, but Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple. And this is what John was hinting back when we looked at verse 17, that editorial note there. Jesus 
in verse uh, 19, he, he is hinting, predicting really, predicting his own death and resurrection. That's what he's doing here. He's actually pointing everyone to an even greater sign than the one that they're asking for. They're wanting to see some miraculous cool like building get built, but Jesus is pointing to the the greatest sign that he's ever going to give to anyone. And the Jewish leaders, they miss that. They miss it. These were the leaders of the temple, the priests, the teachers, the interpreters of God's law to God's people, the ones who should have been the most familiar with the ancient prophecies found in God's word. They, of all people, should have remembered prophecies of the coming Messiah. Prophecies like the one found in Malachi 3, verse 1 through 3. Let's look at that together. Behold. So, so think about this story as we're reading this, 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 the temple and all that. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Two things that are, that are trying to take away the stains and the impurities of something. Fire and, and soap. This is what Jesus is like. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. Who is that? That's the priests. That's the Jewish leaders. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. They totally miss it. And they're not the only ones who totally miss it. Someone else misses it, at least at first. Look at uh, verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So what that literally is telling us is that the disciples who were standing there with Jesus, hearing all this story, watching it go, uh, watching it unfold, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. It wasn't until after he had been raised from the dead that his disciples remembered this story that we're talking about this morning. And what they did when they remembered it was they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus spoke. And that scripture, uh, we had talked about this already earlier, uh, the scripture that they had remembered was Psalm 69, verse 9. Uh, But let's look at that psalm again, and let's back up a little bit to verse 7. And just listen to the crucifixion language, because I think it helps us to understand why this might have popped up into their mind, and into John's mind as why he wanted to, to write this down for us. Uh, Look at verse 7. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. For your sake that I've done this. That dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Jesus came to redeem a people who would reject him and dishonor him and mock him and abandon him. Eventually, zeal for his father's house would consume him. They would destroy the temple of his body, just as Jesus said they would. But there's a part two to that promise, and it's captured so well in, the ver- in verse three of the Gettys' modern hymn, In Christ Alone. I think you guys know that song. I think that's what we're going to close with in a second. Uh, but think, think about this verse three. There in the ground, his body lay. Light of the world 
by darkness slain, consumed. But Jesus wouldn't remain a demolished pile of rubble on the floor. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. He would be resurrected by the zealous power of the Spirit of God. And then it continues, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Why? For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. That's the second part of the story. That's the good news. That's what uh, Juan was helping us to think about. We're going to be with him for eternity, and we'll celebrate that here in just a second. But as we close, um, John's closes, he closes our text. Look, look again in verse 22. What he says in there is that his disciples remembered and they believed the word that Jesus had spoken. You know who else was one of those disciples? The guy writing this whole text, the guy writing this book, John. The guy who is known as, maybe some of you guys know this, the guy who's known as the son, one of the sons of thunder. You ever heard that? Um, he, John, he, John, he knew personally what it was like to receive the loving whip of Jesus. But do you know, you know what John calls himself five times in this gospel? calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. So sure, John, he had received the Savior's discipline, like, like that time when he and his brother wanted to call down fire on a Samaritan village, or the other time when they had interrupted Jesus, telling about his, his coming death to ask if they could sit on the, fr- on the throne next to him in heaven. I mean, so like, he, he obviously had some moments where Jesus had to crack the whip on him. Um, the, but the Savior's discipline, I think what is, what's important to, to realize, the Savior's discipline had made John cherish all the more the Savior's love for him. I could just imagine John writing down these words for us through tears. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. That's what he wants everybody to hear. He was speaking about the temple of his body. John had missed it that Passover day. The other disciples, they had missed it. And John doesn't want anyone else to ever miss it again. It should have been obvious to everyone there that day. Jesus was not just some raving lunatic. He was not just a fanatical protester. He was the son of God, the very son of God. And as he fashioned that whip and drove out the sacrificial animals, fully consumed with zeal for his father's house, the Lamb of God was making a bold statement about himself. That he was, in fact, fully God, fully man, and fully able to save. He came as a man, yes. He alone was the sinless one, perfect, willing to shed his unblemished blood on our behalf. But he also came as God. And as God, he alone was fully able to absorb the infinite righteous wrath our sin deserved. And Jesus came to bear our shame. He took our place. He endured our agony. He suffered as our once-for-all sufficient sacrifice. One of my pastors back in Midland says it this way, the whip that drives out sin was held in the hand of the one who laid down his life for those sinners. That so helpfully sums up the point of this passage. Let me read that again slower. The whip that drives out sin was held in the hand of the one who laid down his life for those sinners. This, mass, this, this passage, it's, it's not merely about what Jesus came to drive out. 
It's actually about what Jesus came to bring in. And, that, and what he came to bring in was his love for us. Well, just as my granny showed me both her, her discipline and her love that day years ago, uh, Jesus shows us his discipline in order that we might experience his love. And that's my prayer for you guys. Uh, would you go ahead and stand with me? Uh, we're going to pray and ask for the Lord to let this be, uh, let, let this word have that effect on our hearts.